Hey, it's Chris, and welcome to the After Party. This is the Daily Tech Podcast. You could be watching this on YouTube on the main channel, or maybe you prefer to watch the clips, which get uploaded to their own separate channel, which is linked up down in the description, or you could be doing the old school thing, which is just listening to the actual audio podcast. However you're consuming this content, welcome. Thanks for joining me. I think we're going to be changing up the podcast format a little bit. As you guys know, I'm still kind of in between, uh, you know, places. I'm still in the middle of this move. It's going to be like mid-September before we get all set up in the brand new studio and space. And the podcast is going to have its own space and room and look and feel. And it's going to be great. And I can't wait. But for the moment, everything's still kind of happening in this one space that you see in most of the videos on the channel recently, which is cool. That's okay. The content continues. So let's start off with some personal stuff, some channel news. And I wanna talk about some cameras that I've been messing around with lately. Recently, I went just hardcore into Sony cameras, into the Sony camera world. And I bought three A6600s. I also purchased a ZV-1, which is sort of the vloggy camera. And I've got my eyes on the A7S III that's rumored to be coming out here in just a couple of days. I think it's the 28th is gonna be uh, the event, the announcement. Obviously, if you're not a creator, a content producer, this impacts you as somebody who consumes daily tech content because these are the cameras that are bringing you my face and the shots of the products, and it matters. And so, I don't know, let me just give you a breakdown of of the decision-making process and how I wound up where I did. Basically, when I was looking at stuff, I was coming from a Panasonic viewpoint. I had the GH5 for several years, and before that, I don't know what I had, like a G7 or something that kind of started off the channel. And I got really used to it, and I liked it, and the GH5, frankly, even though it's a little bit old now, is still, you know, it's pretty capable. It's pretty powerful. It is a beast. Uh, I got it because I really like the uh, camera stabilization, IBIS. You can handhold the shots, and I, I do a lot of handheld shots, and it's because of the great stabilization. And of course, the other thing I really liked about the GH5 when I bought it was the 4K 60. So basically two times slow-mo if I was shooting at 30 frames per second. Well, the one weakness that the Panasonic camera really had was its autofocus and maybe its colors as well. It took a lot of work in the back end to make my face not look weird. And I think if you go back and look at some of the old daily tech videos, you will see my face doesn't always look great. And sometimes it turned out weird because I was trying to fix it and I'm not... I'm not like a color science uh, nerd. I haven't done a deep enough dive into color grading and color correction to really be awesome at it. And so my face does look weird in, in a lot of the old videos. So I was looking for something that, number one, when I was going camera shopping, had really great autofocus. Number two, had better color science uh, so that if I didn't have time to delve into color correction and grading, it would at least look good stock, like right out of the camera. And so I felt like my two main options were either gonna be either Sony or Canon. And Canon has amazing autofocus technology. They have really great color science, maybe the best in, in this category that I kind of was shopping in. But then I needed something that wouldn't overheat on me. Well, let me back up. Uh, I was looking for a multi-cam solution as well, uh, specifically more for the podcast. I've been playing around with it for regular videos as well, but I wanted some multi-camera action. And so I needed something that wouldn't overheat and something that had good battery life that could last for like two hours. And so what I landed on for the multicam stuff was three Sony A6600s. A6600 directly in front of me, kind of capturing a wide angle view with the 10 to 18 lens, uh, which is not all the way zoomed out to 10, but it will be 
in the new setup. And then I got a, another angle, kind of an alternate angle, kind of catty corner, almost at 45 degrees, a little above my head, another A6600. And then up above, I also have a top-down view which is a third A6600. So that's the multicam setup, and I've been very happy with it. Autofocus, great. Uh, colors, pretty good. And then on top of that, um, I did snag the Sony ZV-1, which honestly, uh, I'm gonna use this thing a lot. It's really made for vlogging, for vloggers, like specifically. And I don't do a lot of that. I kind of played around with that with a CarPlay video recently, but I'm actually gonna be using this for things just around the studio in the new space, I feel like. Like if I wanna sit down and shoot a video at my desk and I just wanna to talk to the camera real fast, it's gonna allow me to implement just off the top of the mind kind of ideas and videos really quickly and still look really good, I feel. So that's in the arsenal. And then the thing that I'm also keeping an eye on, and I'm not gonna pull the trigger right away because I'm gonna think about it, but is the new A7S III. And that's gonna be more like a competitor to Canon's new R5 or R6 maybe. Canon just came out with a beast of a camera that shoots 8K, but it has some overheating issues. So you're gonna only be able to record for like 20 or 30 minutes, depending on the mode that you're in, and that doesn't work for me. So right away, I'm already glad that I went the Sony route because the rumors are that the A7S III is not gonna have any recording issues. Now it's not gonna shoot in 8K, but what I like about it is that it's gonna be able to shoot uh, slow-mo, potentially up to 240 frames per second in 1080p, which is great because I can dial up to 120 on the GH5 right now for more cinematic stuff, but you know, 240, that's not bad at all. And then I can upscale that to 4K on my timeline and nobody's ever gonna know the difference. Literally, you guys, if you see some slow-mo stuff on the channel, it's almost always shot in 1080p and then upscaled in my Final Cut Pro timeline. So you're not gonna care one way or another. It's just gonna be extra slow, which is cool. It gives me more options as a creator and, and as an editor. And then if I do improve, my color grading skills, then there's gonna be more color information and bit depth to actually work with. So the end result could be, in the not too distant future, uh, one, two, three, four, a five camera Sony setup that lets me be very versatile. Whether I need to do multicam stuff, whether I wanna do more cinematic stuff, or whether I wanna do some quicker on the go, kind of off the cuff content. I'm gonna be able to do it all. Now, one thing that's a little bit weird is that I've had to switch over from shooting 30 frames per second on the Panasonic GH5 to 24 frames per second, which is fine. It's been pretty flawless, you know, in terms of the transition. I like shooting 30 just a little bit faster so that if I needed to pull out a screen grab, you know, pull out a frame, it'd be a little bit clearer. The motion, you know, if you see stuff like this, uh, it's gonna be a little blurrier if I pause that on a frame with 24 frames per second. So, you know, if I need to get a thumbnail image, you know, and I don't have time to do a separate photo shoot, then this quality suffers just a little bit there. The one major issue with these A6600s has been the rolling shutter. It's terrible. And if there's a lot of fast motion, uh, then it, you end up with a shot that gets a little jello-y. And I've noticed that, even with the cameras being, you know, still and not really moving, that has been a little bit of an issue. I doubt that the end user watching the videos has been like, oh, rolling shutter, this looks terrible. I don't think that's the case at all. But I knew that I was gonna just have these stationary, you know, one, two, three, these cameras aren't moving at all. And for my purposes, for the multi-cam stuff, they've worked great, but if I need something that is gonna be more versatile, let me do more of cinematic stuff, which I want to do more of and get back into once the move is final and I'm in the new studio, then I really need something that's gonna allow me to do that, and that would be the A7S III. 
So, uh, you know, do I regret not going the Canon route or maybe the Blackmagic route? Um, not really. I'm really happy with the Sony stuff so far. I do really, I think the one thing that I miss is the colors coming out of the Canon. Um, the autofocus is just amazing on the Sony's. It's really comparable, I think, from the stuff that I've seen with the Canon. But the color, you know, straight out of the camera, I do, I think, miss the color science on the on the Canons. So yeah, you know, if uh, the next Sony camera camp rolls around and they need somebody new who just recently popped into the ecosystem, then you know where to find me. All right, let's get into some Apple news. Now, the thing that has me most excited of the news that came out recently was that Apple seems to concretely be showing signs through supply chains of bringing a telescopic optical zoom to iPhones. Why is this a big deal? Well, for me, uh, I'm very happy with the iPhone right now. For me, the telescopic zoom that's come to Huawei phones, that's come to Samsung phones, it hasn't been a feature that would make me switch from being an iPhone user to buying any of those phones just for this feature. But at the same time, it's the one feature that I feel like I've really been missing out on as an iPhone user that I wish would come to the iPhone that would make a huge impact, I feel like, if Apple brought this feature to the iPhone. And am I getting those wrong? Someone's gonna be like, telescopic, periscopic, those are very different, blah, blah, blah. but you guys know what I'm talking about. Now, the good news is that that does seem to be coming. The bad news is that we probably aren't gonna see it, it doesn't look like, until 2022. That's quite a ways into the future, unfortunately. So what are we talking about here when we talk about a crazy optical zoom? Because of course there's two kinds of zooms, optical and digital. If you're doing a digital zoom, you're just it's like taking a picture and pinching in with your fingers, right? It's not gonna give you a very clear picture. The more you zoom digitally, you know, the more pixelated that it becomes. It's not a great thing. It's, it's good to have as an option, but it's not optimal. An optical zoom, on the other hand, is when the actual components of the camera can get closer to your subject, and it's a lot clearer. So, you know, we have the Samsung Galaxy S20 Ultra, which I think is still the reigning king of zooms on phones at the moment. I could be wrong, but it has 108 megapixels of resolution, and the zoom camera in particular has 48 megapixels and a periscopic lens assembly. There's a super zoom mode with like 100 times super zoom that combines all the different zooms, optical and digital, and from what I understand, I haven't tried it, it's not usable, it's not good. And then you have the Huawei P30 Pro out there with a five times optical zoom with a periscopic assembly as well. And actually, Apple's been thinking about this, I should mention. There was patents that go back to like 2016 where they were looking at periscopic zooms for iPhones, 2016. I mean, they've been thinking about it. And you know how Apple does things. They don't always have to be the first. And when they are the first, it's often category defining. You know, AirPods. Those were the first truly wireless earbuds that really made a huge splash. The Apple Watch, it was the first smartwatch that really made a big splash. Those were really firsts. Those were the first times those kinds of products and those categories landed in a huge way. But oftentimes, Apple is content to wait, see how things play out, and then when they do bring something to market that's been out for a while, they like to put their own spin on it often and just blow everything else out of the water. And I'm hoping that that's what happens with the telescopic zoom. So what are we talking about when we're talking about a periscopic lens, in case you're not sure how it actually works? What it is, is a way for light to enter into the lens and then get reflected and bounced around deeper into the phone vertically so that you don't have a horizontal protrusion sticking out from your phone. 
if you were to look at, let's say, one of the A6600s that I'm using to shoot with here, I've got some extra glass on there, some lenses that sticks out from the body. Well, you can't have that on a phone because it's not gonna fit in your pocket. So the periscopic lens assembly is a way for you to have the same kind of an effect to get you closer to a subject, but without that extra glass sticking off. You actually use some mirrors in order to make that happen and to bounce the light around and to give you that extra capability. Apple, in the patent that they filed, this is how they actually describe it. It's described as a folded telephoto camera lens system. So is it a gimmick or is it useful? If Apple puts it out there, I will use it. Now, on the flip side, I gotta say, these cameras can be a little bit creepy. I've seen some of the pictures that have been taken with the Huawei's and the Samsung's that have these periscopic zooms. And it's, you know, in one sense, it's just not cool, right? You can totally invade somebody else's privacy without them even having any clue. And that is not cool. I guess there's a lot of things that just aren't cool in, in this day and age that are kind of unavoidable from a privacy standpoint. But personally though, I am excited to see this come to the iPhone because it's just gonna make this that much more of a versatile camera. It's already the go-to camera we're all carrying around. Let's uh, switch gears. Let's talk about the iPhone SE for a little bit here. I have made a couple of reviews of the iPhone SE and they've both been very popular. The first one, my initial review, uh, got well over 100,000 views. The second one got over 100,000 views. People are really interested in this phone. And honestly, I almost didn't review it because I thought people just maybe wouldn't be as interested. I didn't know with that design, with that look, with the forehead and the chin. I just didn't know if people really were gonna be interested. But it turns out that people have been very interested, but it's two distinct groups that have been really into the iPhone SE. Can you guess who that is? Number one, switchers. That's right, people coming from Android have been interested in the iPhone SE. Number two, we'll call them slowpokes, people who aren't interested in the latest, greatest flagship model of the iPhone. So switchers and slowpokes, that's who's been really into the iPhone SE. Because a lot of people were like, who's gonna buy that? And I understand that sentiment because I'm the type of person who would rather have a flagship phone. I want the latest and greatest. But on the other hand, I do know plenty of people who don't care about the latest and greatest. And like I can point to my parents, you know, they don't, any of them, I don't think, have the latest, greatest iPhone. So I guess they kind of fit into the slowpoke category. And that's fine. Because in a way, actually, you know, the guts of the SE, they are pretty much the latest and greatest. Now, not necessarily the cameras, you know, but but in terms of the processor, that's the iPhone 11 processor. It's very fast, it's very capable, and it's gonna remain that way into the future so that you can continue, if you buy this, to be a slow poke and yet still not be slow in terms of what you can do. And the Android segment, that makes sense to me as well because if you're looking at Android phones, there's a lot of budget Android phones out there. And if you want to be in the Apple ecosystem, now you can buy in for cheaper with the SE and not be disappointed. You, It's the core iPhone experience. I've talked about this so many times. With the iPhone SE, you get the core of the iPhone experience, but not necessarily the latest unlocking technology. And that's not a big deal. You can unlock with your fingerprint instead of your face and still get in and get all your stuff and it's great. You can take amazing photos. And really, the photos are very, great. I mean, it's a super capable camera, but without the latest and greatest lens array. I've said so many times, and if you're watching this and you are wondering if you should get an iPhone SE because that's what you're looking at, look, I could run almost my whole business. I could shoot videos, shoot photos, edit those on the iPhone, upload them to YouTube, to my social media channels, 
basically run the whole business if I had to off of an iPhone. Much less, I could do it off an iPhone SE. I really think I could. It's an experiment that I should try sometime. So in business terms, the iPhone SE, let's see, it made up 19% of Apple's total iPhone sales for the second quarter of the year. That's like a fifth of iPhone sales. And also that's plenty of motivation for Apple to make it, to bring that many people over from Android. Because once they get you with a phone, then of course you can start tapping into Apple services and Apple makes more money. And actually I just read the stat. It says over 26% of iPhone SE users are people who came over from Android. So about a quarter of SE users came from Android. Now another interesting stat uh, is that 30% of the people that got the SE were people who were coming from an older device, an older Apple device. So we're talking about like the iPhone 6S or older. Now, a lot of analysis has been done about which iPhone is being bought by who, and there's a big group of people who have not been interested in the iPhone SE, and I fall into this group, who are waiting for the new 5G iPhones to hit later this year. So whether that's September, October, we don't know exactly when yet. So has the iPhone SE been a failure? No. And is it cool as around? Yeah, I had a lot of people commenting on the reviews saying that they preferred the design. A surprising amount of people. Because I don't prefer the design, but there's a lot of people out there who like the way that it looks. They And also, there's some dedicated diehard fans of the home button, which is gone in the latest models. And a lot of people don't like the look of the latest models. I'm just surprised. I guess if you didn't like the notch, then you could go back to, the, to this design and be a little bit more happy. Although, in a way, for me, I feel like it's really got a bigger notch because it's just all notch on the top. It's just a big forehead. But of course there's the size too. It's it's a good size for a lot of people and you guys know my philosophy kind of, although I think I'm gonna switch it up this year, that when I'm out in mobile, I prefer the most power I can get in the smallest package, the smallest handheld that I can get. And right now, for me, that's the iPhone 11 Pro, the smaller version, not the plus size. But again, I really like the size of the SE because I've got an iPad. I can go bigger if I need to. I got the you know 12.9 inch iPad on my desk at all times and with me most of the time. And I love the 11 inch as well. I got an iPad mini sitting in front of me that I'm using as a monitor so I can see the top down view of this camera. And I love that thing too. I like to read with an iPad mini. And sometimes I use the iPhone, uh, just the plain base model iPhone as a monitor for, for these videos too. They're so versatile. So for stuff where I need you know, a bigger screen, I prefer to go with the iPad. But for as a tool, as a creative tool, and as something to interact with the world with, I like something that's smaller. And the iPhone SE can be a great phone for that. So the iPad Air is rumored to be getting a refresh soon. And this is something that's worth talking about. For I'm, I'm actually really excited about it based on the rumors, on the things that I'm hearing. Because as you guys know, I am an iPad Pro user. It's my go-to iPad. I got a couple of them. And I use them for different reasons and different things, depending on the size. And just because I can put them to use. I literally, there's so many things I can do. I put them to use all over the place. But similarly, in the last clip, we just talked about the iPhone SE and how it's so capable. It has the core you know, iPhone experience in that uh, cheaper price, the budget area, budget pricing but it can do basically everything that you need an iPhone to do. Well, I feel like that also works and is, is applicable in the iPad world as well. So even though I do love the iPad Pros, I could basically do everything that I need to do on the entry-level iPad, of course. Now, the iPad Air is a particularly interesting iPad for me because it sits in between you know, the base model and the Pro level. 
and you get a lot of the pro features in the air already, but at a better price. And if you just don't care about the looks necessarily, you know, and people knowing if it's not like a showpiece to you, yeah, it's just a really great option. So actually the upcoming iPad Air, I think is sort of the iPhone SE of iPads. I think that's a great way to put it. And what I mean by that is you get the guts, the latest guts, the fastest processor in an older body, basically. And so as I'm looking at what the rumors actually say, in terms of the hardware, it looks like we're gonna get a 10.8 inch display, the A13 chip, which is the same processor found in the SE. So really, it's it's an adept analogy. And a price somewhere between 500 and $330. Okay, all of that's fine, that's all good. Nothing to complain about there at all. But the two things that are really exciting, extra exciting to me, as somebody who's excited for everybody to get their hands on an awesome iPad, would be number one, the inclusion of USB-C, just like the Pro, that is a game changer, really, for so many reasons. And number two, the possibility of getting a Magic Keyboard, which at the moment is only available, Apple's new Magic Keyboard for iPads, for the iPad Pro. Now, I have to say, let me talk about each of those things. Uh, USB-C on an iPad has been game-changing for me because, number one, if I don't have the budget to upgrade my internal storage, which is my preferred way of doing things, but Apple storage is so expensive, then I can plug in a really great, really fast external drive, get stuff backed up. I can even work on projects on that external drive. So whether you're doing photo stuff or video stuff or just doing art or, you know, it can be a strategy for you. Like, just buy the iPad at the base specs, you know, and get your storage later you know, kind of add on later. It's just, it's great. It's just, it's just great. I love it. But the thing that's even more exciting than that is the Magic Keyboard, potentially, for iPad Air users because the Magic Keyboard is the best typing experience for an iPad, period. There's a lot of other great options that you can do. If you don't need something that's mobile, you can get just any Bluetooth keyboard and hook it up. I love the MX keys from Logitech. And by the way, they just came out with new uh, MX keys and MX Master Mouse for Macs, which also work with the iPad, by the way. And I've got those, they sent them over. Thank you, Logitech. I haven't checked them out yet. I need to make a video on them, but I have been testing them. In fact, I have the new uh, Mac version of the MX Master right here, which I'm using to control the computer with a new secret monitor that's sitting over here, which I can't show you yet because it's part of a sponsorship, but I'm in the testing phase and it's right off camera to tantalize you. So you gotta be subscribed, make sure you know. It's it's a really cool monitor. But anyways, I got all this stuff I'm always testing. I feel like I'm just running out of time to talk about it to you guys. But anyways, you can create an absolutely amazing iPad setup. And that's something that I wanna do more in the future. By the way, just to go off of one more little tangent, is kind of have an ongoing iPad and Mac, two separate setups as a series, and just talk about the things that I'm adding to and tweaking for those setups. So they're gonna be my permanent setups for each of these devices in the new space, in the new studio. But I kind of want to, as I add components and rearrange things, just kind of have an ongoing series that updates people and says, here's the latest and greatest thing, or here's the new techniques I've found. I think it's gonna be really cool. But if you need something that is mobile, that's portable, that can go with you, yes, the iPad Pro Magic Keyboard is very heavy, so that kind of weighs against it if you wanna be more portable. But I put up with that weight because I just love the typing experience so much. But yeah, just to reiterate something that I said over and over and over again on the channel and everywhere, 
it's a night and day difference between the old Apple official keyboard and the new Magic keyboard. So the Smart Keyboard Folio, it's good in a pinch. And I, I tend to recommend that for people who are artistic and creative and are going to be spending most of their time with the Apple Pencil in tablet mode or using the Apple Pencil and things like writing or you know doing a lot of typing. That is more of a secondary thing. On the other hand, if you're more artistic using the Apple Pencil, then don't care as much about the keyboard. But if you fit into that group that does a lot of typing, you know, 80% of your time is, is you know, typing, like a more of a laptop-y kind of experience, there's just nothing like the Magic Keyboard. Now, the other thing that comes with that, now that we have mouse support, is a trackpad. And the trackpad is great on the Magic Keyboard, too. It is smaller, but what I like is that you can uh, turn up the uh, trackpad speed and then it doesn't matter. The size doesn't matter. You can get uh, to all the different corners really easily and it doesn't have to be as big as what you get on, you know, like this six inch MacBook Pro. And you know, the other thing I like is when I have it, and this is, there's so many trade-offs. When I'm using the Magic Keyboard for my iPad Pro, I feel like the screen stays nicer longer. So I've got a screen protector on there. I'm sure you can guess which one. They've been a sponsor before. And in the past, I've accidentally ruined the screen protector by getting it scratched, you know, by just throwing it around. And that was with the Smart Keyboard Folio because you can flip it around in tablet mode and sometimes I just wouldn't cover up the screen, you know, I'd leave it off and that's not good. But when I have the Magic Keyboard on, I feel like it takes better care of my iPad because it's built like a tank. And because of the hinge system, it is more of a pain to, you know, take it off and convert it into tablet mode, to use it as a tablet. I've talked about that many times, especially in the latest review. So I think the benefits of getting the USB-C and getting the Magic Keyboard are huge potentially for iPad Air purchasers. I mean, really, do you need an iPad Pro? We're getting to the point where maybe you don't really. And it really, I think, just comes down to the design. And I don't know how the design's gonna fare. I'm guessing if it's more of the iPhone SE of iPads, then the new iPad Air isn't gonna have the latest iPad Pro design. And that makes sense. Apple does need to reserve something. And I do like the look of the iPad Pro much better than the older iPad models. Just like I like the iPhone 11 Pro better than the iPhone SE. I do like the looks better. But looks are nice to haves. It's not necessary. It's not a need to have. So if you are just concentrating on getting some work done, and I think this is gonna be especially great for the student segment, the new iPad Air then I think this is just gonna be potentially a killer, killer setup. AirPods Pro, I like them. I like them a lot, but they've also been kind of problematic for me. There's a new report out that says Apple's thinking about releasing some new ones, second generation AirPods Pro with noise canceling during the second half of next year. I could not be looking forward to this more. Let me tell you why. If you guys have been following me for any amount of time, then you know I've had some issues with my AirPods Pro. That crackling sound, I don't know any better way to describe it, that happens when something goes wrong with the noise canceling technology inside. I made a whole video about it. So if you wanna catch up, then you should go look for Daily Tech AirPods Pro noise canceling issue or something. I don't know, you'll find it, I forget what it was called. But a lot of people in the comments have had similar issues and I think this is a fairly widespread thing with AirPods Pro. So am I looking forward to Apple coming out with a new version? Yes, because I'm assuming that they're gonna get that fixed. Let me tell you guys something. I got a replacement for the AirPods Pros that were busted, that were messed up, that had the crackling issue, and they were great for many months. I don't know how many months, and then just in the last week or so, 
that issue has resurfaced, only on the right side, but it drives me nuts. And in order to fix it, to make it usable, I've just had to turn off the noise canceling. And that there goes like a big part of, you know, the benefit and the reason for using AirPods Pro in the first place. Now, of course, I could send them back in and shoot for another replacement. The thing is, I just don't wanna mess with it. You know, I, I'm so busy already. It's a struggle to turn out all the content for the channel and for social media stuff already. It's just like one extra thing, uh, you know, messing with talking to support and getting, you know, the package sent back, get the label uh, and getting new ones. Ah, I'm just, I'm gonna turn off the noise canceling for now live with it because you know i'm just going to treat them basically like old airpods the, the regular airpods without noise canceling at least i still get some of the noise isolation because of the way they fit in the ear and you know they're still comfortable i'm just i'm going to live without the noise canceling right now because i'm tired of the hassle of having to send them back and other than that too i mean i'm going to use the beats uh solo pros that i use and love that i've talked about a lot uh when i'm editing you know content or maybe some studio uh, headphones like this. These are some Sony monitoring headphones, nothing exciting, but something that you would use, you know, professionally in a podcast or professional audio setting, you know, some good solid monitoring headphones. So I've got some other headphone options, but I'm really excited about a newer version, an updated version of AirPods Pros just for that fix. If nothing else changed and the marketing just said, we fixed that noise crackling issue, I would be so happy. Now, of course, I'm sure that there's gonna be some other kind of uh, upgrade as well, You know, whether that's health-related or fitness-related. I could definitely see that with the sensors that get built into uh, and then you know the different patents and rumors that I've been seeing. I could definitely see that. I'm sure there's gonna be some great new features as well, but that's the one thing I really wanna get fixed. It's too bad I'm gonna have to wait this long. Now, just AirPods in general, I think there's a new pair of just plain old regular AirPods that are supposed to be coming out in the first half of 2021. And then the the pros are gonna be coming out in the second half of the year. I guess it's worth touching on, just because I already mentioned some of the features that could be coming to future AirPods, uh, what some of those things could be, the new features. Well, I think the, the big thing is just gonna be health stuff. So Apple's coming at health from a variety of angles. You can pick up uh, an Apple Watch and have all kinds of sensors at your disposal to monitor your heart rate. And maybe in the future, we're gonna get like glucose monitoring. And so they're making a huge push into health. It only makes sense for health stuff to come to AirPods because it's just as much of a wearable as your Apple Watch. And for a lot of people, I'm not quite there, but I have them in a lot of the time to the point where my wife's like, do you ever take those out? If there's anything bad about those, it's gonna affect you because you have them in so much. But a lot of people do. They're basically, you know, part cybernetic because they have AirPods in all the time. But what if you could get AirPods as an alternative to the Apple Watch? Because some people are, are not so deep into the ecosystem that they're just gonna have every Apple device out there. They're gonna be making a decision. Should I get the Apple Watch or should I get this new version of AirPods with my bonus check, you know? So if your AirPods with the sensors could detect heart rate and measure step count, and do things like detect head movement. Those are pretty cool things. And like the head movement, that's something that would augment the information that you could get with your Apple Watch, right? And all of this stuff, whether it's your Apple Watch or your AirPods, it's all gonna play some kind of a role in Apple's upcoming AR environment and system, which is gonna really be uh, just a categorical shift, I think, the more I hear about it in how we interact with our devices. All these sensors are gonna make a big difference when it comes to 
how we interact with the world. So I'm excited about this. If there's one other thing I would have Apple fix with the next version of AirPods Pro, these have been falling out of my ear occasionally. I never had that issue with the older version, the original AirPods. And I've had every version of AirPods that have come out, I've tested them. The old ones never fell out of my ears. Now I understand for a lot of people, it was the opposite. The new ones don't fall out and the old ones did. And it's like impossible for Apple, I think at this point to have dialed in a design that works for everybody 100% across the board. And even with the different tips, you know, it doesn't matter what tip I use, it still have had an issue with it falling out. Usually if I'm leaning over something, that's when one of them might fall out. If Apple could fix that somehow, that would be great. That would be my one other thing. Oh, and I guess the other thing that would be fun for them to add, I don't know if they will, and I actually really like the white look, but that would be to just add some other color options. Maybe black, maybe, and maybe that's more of a Beats thing. You know, it feels like Apple kind of reserves a lot of the colors in the, you know, headphone uh, and ear earbud line for Beats. But if Apple ever merges Beats into, you know, itself, because of course we have AirPods Studio uh, in the rumor lineup as well, which would be over ear AirPods with all the benefits of the AirPods Pro, then maybe at that point we get some extra colors. I don't know. So just to recap, I'm very excited about a new version of AirPods Pro coming down the line because I need it. Because this current situation, it's almost like, it's, it's almost hard to recommend. On the one hand, I love them and I recommend them to everybody. But on the other hand, it's like, be careful because I don't know what causes that issue. Maybe it's been determined what caused that issue, but it's almost like you're going to run into that issue at some point. And yeah, Apple does take care of it. They took care of mine, got a replacement, no issue. It wasn't, but it takes time though. And it's annoying and it does mentally dent your image of Apple in, in terms of like the quality of the product. The experience is great except for that one thing. So it needs to get fixed. So as you guys might expect, I have all the different betas running on all my different Apple devices that came out uh, with, that were announced at WWDC this year. So got beta iOS 14 running on a couple iPhones, got the beta of iPadOS on one of my iPads, got Big Sur on one of the Macs, and yes, I do have the watchOS 7 beta running on my wrist. Now some of these devices are my daily devices, some of them are like test devices or review devices, but for the Apple Watch, I actually loaded it up on my real actual Apple Watch that I use all the time, that's with me all the time. And one of the things that I've been testing out is the new hand washing feature. So this is something that you actually have to go in and enable, but it's been interesting. Not sure how I feel about it. I kind of mentioned before, in the past, I've been a, a quick washer. You know, I haven't spent as much time washing as I probably should. Somebody out there is getting really grossed out right now. Sorry about that, I'm just being honest here. But this new hand washing feature for watchOS 7 it's supposed to help you wash for 20 seconds. Now for me, it hasn't worked perfectly. When they announced this from the stage, I was like, oh, that's kind of clever. It's something that I guess could have real implications out in the real world with the coronavirus you know, pandemic happening. It's important for people to be washing thoroughly, but at the same time, it's not like a brand new camera or something on the iPhone. It wasn't like, wow. But the way that Apple's implementing it is kind of impressive. You know, they're listening for squishy sounds and they're using the accelerometer, the gyroscope, and you know, to determine hand washing motions. It's pretty cool that it can detect it. Now, does it actually do a good job of coaching you and making sure that you wash your hands? That has been a little bit of hit or miss for me in the beta anyways. It often does detect it, but something that's been annoying for me with this whole thing, testing this out, is that the screen goes 
to sleep. Not that long ago, Apple said, we're not going to keep the screen on all the time to save some battery life. And so it goes dark sometimes, then it lights up when you're looking at it, which works a lot of the time, not all the time. But that's not good when you're washing your hands. So you got to turn on the haptics. There's an option to do that. I'm going to tell you how to turn it on in just a second. But when you're washing, for me, it feels like an eternity. I do everything so fast. I go up and downstairs fast. I walk fast. I listen to podcasts at one and a half to two times speed and audiobooks. I just do. My brain operates in fast mode. And I think that's where that fast hand washing comes in. Like I'm always, it's not that I'm in a hurry, but well, maybe it is. Maybe I'm trying to fit a lot into the day, but it can feel like an eternity. You know, the 20 seconds, especially when you know you're being timed, it makes it go slower for some reason for me. But when I'm washing the hands, I can't actually look at the screen very easily without stopping washing to look. And then the screen lights up and then you see, oh, it's only been two seconds. So it's almost like if if it detected that you're washing your hands, the screen should be on the whole time. I think that's something that should get fixed before the actual software ships. Because it is automatic. You don't have to do anything uh, when you when you just start washing your hands. It does turn on, but then what's the point if you can't really see? And sometimes it feels like it gets stuck, and maybe that's just a beta thing. But anyways, it is an interesting feature. I guess it is kind of important, but if you want to actually get it set up, you got to go to settings, uh, scroll down to hand washing, turn on the timer, it's a little toggle, and then turn on the haptics. If you don't turn on the haptics, which is optional, I just don't know how this is really going to work that well for you for all the reasons that I've just described. Now, what's more interesting, of course, is the data that this generates. So if you go into the health app and the health app, it's getting, I guess, so powerful, which is good, which makes it usable, but it's getting hard to find stuff like the sleep tracking for the Apple Watch. It's a little bit tricky to go in if you don't know what you're doing or it's going to take you some time to play around to find that sleep data. Well, can you imagine how it is to find your hand washing data? Uh, because that's obviously not as important as your heart rate, which gets put front and center, you know. But if you go health, browse, search, hand washing, you can find your hand washing data. And then it's actually going to fill you in on all the times that you've washed your hands. <laughs> and then it will tell you your average. I just looked at mine. I'm not even going to share because it's going to cause jaws to drop. And maybe that's because I wash more than 20 seconds on average. You don't know. So, yeah. I mean, on the on the one hand, ugh, are we delving into like tracking too much with the Apple Watch? You know, it doesn't have to monitor everything. You know, pretty soon it's going to be like, how many times did you grab a glass of water and actually take a sip? Oh, you didn't get enough water for the day. Not enough sips. I don't know. You know, it's an interesting feature. It could be important to society. But of course, not everyone has an Apple Watch to begin with. But that's how to get it running and start using it. And you definitely want to enable the haptics, I think, if you want to get anything out of it. Now, here's a topic that I want to go more in depth on at some point. But this is a podcast, and it's still worth talking about it because school is coming. And whether it's going to be in person or whether you're doing it from home, this is going to be an important topic for people. And that is, what is the best iPad mouse for most people? And what is the best trackpad? For most people, there's more options than you probably realize. Of course, there's Apple's Magic Mouse too, which is definitely an option. And I'm actually pretty fond of that mouse, even though a lot of people have said they don't like it. I really do like it. And then there's Apple's Magic Trackpad, which is now in its second generation. And that's a cool thing. That's a standalone option. And I've used it before. You can see in some of my earlier iPad Pro content from, you know, within the last year that I've used it. And it's been cool. That was before the uh, Magic Keyboard came out that had the trackpad built in. That's, of course, another option. The Magic Keyboard, if you get an iPad Pro and maybe an iPad Air soon. 
then you can use that built-in trackpad, and that's cool too. Or you could go with the brand new Logitech MX Master that is made specifically for Apple devices. They say it's been mastered for the Mac, but also works for the iPad. I used to not like that mouse, but I really do like it a, a lot these days. You could use something like the Pebble i345, which is a great mouse. You've seen that. In fact, I got it right here. Uh, this is the Pebble. If you're watching this, instead of listening to the podcast, this is an amazing mouse. I love the way that it clicks. And it's such a great price at 30 bucks. Of course, you could use something like the Microsoft Arc, which I've never used, but I hear good things about. People really like that design, that compact design, lightweight. Or something else that I've had some experience with is the Sateki, what is it? The Sateki M1. It's a Bluetooth mouse. And you can see that featured in an iPad setup video I did a while back, which is pretty cool. It's been getting some views. People have been liking it, even though it's many months since I made it. So, I mean, which direction should you go? And, and does it even matter? Should you get a mouse for your iPad? I think you should. You know, iPads were born uh, as touch-first devices for your finger, and then the Apple Pencil got added, and you could do something more precise with that tip of the pencil than your finger, which is a lot less precise. And then Apple added Mouseport, and I didn't know if I was gonna like it or care, and I ended up really liking it to the point where I do use the Magic Keyboard basically all the time with my iPad Pro because I wouldn't want to be without the mouse now, or the trackpad, I guess, in that instance. So honestly, I think, yes, you should get a mouse or a trackpad of some sort. Uh, you don't have to, it's not a prerequisite, but I think it really does make for a great experience, especially the trackpad is cool because you get the multi-finger gestures, the multi-touch gestures. Those are time savers, to be honest. And unless you get Apple's Magic Mouse, if you go with any of these other mice and not a trackpad, you're gonna lose that. And you can replicate it a little bit if you program some of the keys, like I showed in my Siri Shortcuts video recently, how to reprogram one of the, uh, actually this button right here, I showed you how to reprogram that using Siri Shortcuts to get some you know extra functionality out of it. But let's start with the Apple stuff. Would I rather have Apple's external trackpad or would I rather have the trackpad that comes built into the Magic Keyboard for the iPad Pro? Or would I rather have Apple's Magic Mouse? Well. Honestly, I'll just be honest, you can't go wrong. It's more efficient um, to just have everything built into the Magic Keyboard on the iPad Pro, but if you're not a pro user, I guess, then what would I pick? Well, uh, I would probably pick the trackpad, I think. It's a really, really fun experience. Uh, and it's not that bad to take the trackpad to pack it up and bring it with you someplace. It's not as bad as you might imagine. A mouse is a little more compact, you know, so that's something to keep in mind. But I like the gestures too much, like like multitasking, swiping between things. Uh, if I have two full screen windows open, just three finger swipe left and right to get around, that's amazing. Of course, you can swipe around with the mouse too. It's just, it's it's, it's a matter of preference, I guess, but I would prefer the, the bigger, larger trackpad, I think. It's kind of a toss up between the Magic Mouse and the Magic Trackpad. It's just whatever you think you would enjoy more. Can't go wrong. The Sateki M1, let's hit that next. That I have used, it was featured in a video, and it's okay, and I'm just gonna say, just okay. I actually didn't love it in terms of how it clicked uh, and the look. It's just okay. And one of the reasons is it just doesn't feel like a super high quality thing. A lot of the stuff Satechi makes is great stuff, but this feels a little too budget for me if you're going to be relying on this for a long time. Maybe you are just looking for a cheaper option, but if you are, I would recommend the Logitech i345. It's the first, the Pebble, it's the first mouse that really was designed to be used with an iPad. What does that mean? Well, it's light and without, it's, it, you know, 
it's cheap and light basically, but without feeling super budget or like it's gonna break. And I really, really, really like the way that it clicks. Super satisfying, something about it. Okay, what about the MX Master? I got it right here. I'm gonna set it right on top of its own picture. This is an amazing mouse. And I've been liking it even more since Logitech recently sent it. Disclosure, they did send it to me to test. And But like I said, I used to not like this mouse. Um, I just didn't like the way that it felt in my hand. As I've been doing more and more uh, video editing over the years, it's grown on me because I feel like I've turned into more and more of a power user. If I was ever a power user in the past in that category, that's only increased. And so all the ways that I can customize this are why I've come to appreciate it. It's very, very, very professional. It's like if you do professional things, you almost have to get this mouse. Now, is it overkill for an iPad? Possibly, um, maybe, but it's really, really premium. You know it's gonna last. Uh, this version doesn't require a dongle anymore. I didn't like that about previous versions that I've used where you had to plug something into the USB port. You can use this with the iPad without a dongle. Of course, you would have to, and that's great. That makes for a much better experience. The scroll wheel on this thing, there's two actually, is just amazing. There's nothing else that compares. Uh, I guess except, you know, the Magic Mouse, it doesn't have a scroll wheel, it just has a touch interface, and that's cool in its own way. But if you prefer the tactile feel of an actual scroll button, this thing can't be beat, and it's unlike anything else out there. I'm not just saying that, like the way that it scrolls kind of has two modes, uh, and it clicks obviously too, but you can scroll it just a little bit, or you can really scroll it a lot, and it will go forever. So you can go to the bottom of a website, a long article really fast, or back to the top really fast, and then of course all the buttons. It's super customizable. So in the past, didn't love it, but I've totally flipped around, and I really do like it. It has nothing to do with Logitech sending it to me. I guess it just has more to do with um, needing that extra functionality in ways that I hadn't in the past. And then also kind of making peace with the design. It's not like it's uncomfortable. Um, I actually felt like the Magic Mouse 2 was more comfortable, even though it's flatter and it doesn't fit into your palm like the MX Master does. But I've gotten over uh, disliking the way that it feels compared to the Magic Mouse and just liking the extra functionality. Microsoft Arc, uh, I have no experience, I'm just gonna be honest, but I think it's a good option. It's worth including here. I've looked at it many times. I've liked the design. I said, that looks really cool. And I like how portable it is. The fact that it bends up and you know stashes away. It's a really well thought out thing. I have to give props to Microsoft, their design team. The industrial design has been great over the last few years. Um, if it just, if a lot of their stuff ran Mac OS, I would love to buy it or iPad OS uh, and not Windows. Windows is really the main holdup for me when it comes to Microsoft stuff. But this is something that has had my eye and I've heard good things about it. And so I think if you like the design, this is probably something that's worth looking into. One last thing that's worth mentioning though, before I give you my final recommendation, like if I had to pick one thing, is the Logitech K380 Media. Is that right? Yes, K380 Media. It's a keyboard with a trackpad off to the side. And so as you can see here, I mean, now that you have mouse support, trackpad support for iPads, this is an interesting option. Now this is more of a desk-based option. It's not something you'd really wanna stash in a bag and bring with you, you could, I mean, if you really liked it, I guess you could. Um, so this is, I think, would be tend to be more of a desk-based setup. But it's interesting. It, it's worth mentioning. I tend to really like the quality of Logitech's keyboards. And so I feel like I can recommend it, even though this is another thing I haven't used. But it, it seems like a perfect fit for an iPad. This keyboard right here is a K380. It's not the media version, and it's brand new as well. 
really soft keys. It's it's great to type on. Like I mentioned earlier, it's kind of the opposite of a mechanical keyboard. It feels very solid. It doesn't feel like it's gonna break. It feels like it could be high, you know, long lasting. So those are the best options, I think. So at the end of the day, what would I pick? I think in order, if you have an iPad Pro, I would definitely get the Magic Keyboard. Love the typing experience, but the trackpad is great. Just set the sensitivity up to high and it's gonna be just as good as using, in my opinion, the larger trackpad that you get with the 16 inch MacBook Pro. If I couldn't get that and I still wanted the touch experience, then I would also recommend um, the Magic Trackpad 2. That's a great device as well. Um, it's not quite as easy to travel with, but it's not bad. When it comes to the mice, I think at this point, it's a toss up, but I would probably go with the Apple one just because Apple stuff plays really nicely together. You don't have to worry about it, but it's just a toss up between that in my mind and the MX Master Mouse. Such a high quality product. I think there's a little bit more lag with the MX Master, but not uh, something that's gonna be detrimental. In fact, if you didn't test them side by side, you may not even notice. That's the thing. When you test stuff as a tech reviewer side by side, then sometimes things jump out that wouldn't you know, actually matter to the average everyday person who's not you know, testing something out right next to another device that's slightly different. So those are my recommendations. I'll link them all up though so that you can check them out down in the description in the show notes. College, it's coming up. Whether you're gonna be doing online courses or you actually plan on attending college during the pandemic, which is maybe a good idea or not, but you can't control it because your school or your district, I don't know. Whatever you're gonna be doing and however you're gonna be doing it, if you're a student or if you're shopping for a student and you are looking on the budget side of the Apple ecosystem, whether that's a Mac or an iPad, then this is the video that's gonna help you narrow things down to figure out what's the best option for you. Because that's the thing, right? The thing most college students have in common is really a budget that isn't uh, too big. Maybe you're not, you don't have your degree. You're not out there earning the big bucks unless you have some crazy sneaker reselling gig on the side. That's not most people though. Well, first things first, I think the starting place, the first thing you gotta check out in your search is the Mac mini. Now the Mac mini is obviously a smaller Mac, but it, that doesn't mean that it's not capable. If you've never given it a second thought, you really should look at it because the entry level model is definitely gonna be enough to get you through whatever you're studying. The entry level model has 256 gigs of SSD, that's solid state, much better than an optical drive that spins around. And you're also gonna get eight gigs of RAM. That is plenty for stuff that a student's gonna be up to. Now you can get a mini for somewhere around 759 bucks, which it's sub $1,000, so that's, good, that's nice. The downside is that you're gonna have to get an extra monitor, an extra monitor for yourself, and pick up a keyboard and a mouse. So yeah, I mean, it's gonna cost a little bit more than the computer itself, that's something to keep in mind. The other thing is you're gonna be tied down to one location. It's not really portable, so maybe this is gonna live in the dorm, but it's not gonna go with you to class. So this is gonna depend on what kind of stuff you're studying, what kind of student you are, what's your style, do you just want to take your phone and hit record while the lecture is happening, you know? Uh, or do you prefer like paper and pencil for your notes? You know, new school or old school, and then take things back and actually do some work, you know, on the on the Mac. Then yeah, you should be checking out the Mini as an option because one thing that's nice is that it can kind of grow with you. If you want to outfit it with some extra RAM down the road, that is an option, which may not be an option for some of the other. Apple products. 
And actually, if you are looking to save some money, you could get an older Mac Mini, uh, like a 2018 that has less storage, I think like 128, and save a little bit of money. For me, though, it'd be worth it to get the 256 in the current you know, version. All right, but maybe a Mac Mini, that doesn't fit you. It's not your style, and you need something that's portable that's gonna go with you to class that you don't have to get an external monitor or keyboard or mouse with. What do you look at? Well, I think the thing that you're looking at is a MacBook Air. So the MacBook Air represents three things, portability, performance, and price. It's sort of at the nexus of those things. It's not the most portable Apple device you can get. That title probably belongs to the iPad or even an iPhone. It's not the most powerful in terms of performance. You know, even an iPad could probably outdo it, but it's great. It's plenty powerful, especially for students. This is one area where you don't want it to be at the top of the line, probably if you're a student. And the price is pretty good, especially considering that it does, especially considering that you don't have to buy any extra peripherals if you don't want to. And yet it does leave the door open to get an external monitor if you want to, if you want to upgrade your setup a little bit or to use a mouse instead of just a trackpad. So base model, you're talking about 256 gigs, just like the Mac mini, eight gigs of RAM, uh, you know, depends what kind of student you are. Are you doing like media stuff? Maybe that's not good. And by the way, you know, do you need a machine too that's gonna be able to help you relax when you're not studying? Hopefully it doesn't become a distraction, but if you're gonna be doing any kind of gaming, if you're gonna load up Apple Arcade or something, maybe, you know, for some of this stuff, or, you know, you're not gonna be doing any AAA gaming, right, on any of the things that we're about to talk about. Uh, but, you know, maybe those are some factors, but eight gigs of RAM is probably livable. I will say for, any of the Mac related stuff, if you can upgrade the storage or the RAM, then do. But if you can't, these will be livable. All right, let's move on to iPads. Now, these are gonna span, these are gonna really run the gamut. You can get the 10.2 inch, like the entry level, base level iPad, and it is going to be able to do a lot for you. You don't have to approach it and say, I can only get this 10.2 inch iPad because that's not the right way to look at it. It's not an inadequate device, it can do a ton. Yeah, is the display laminated and it's a little bit different? There's more of an air gap between that and the iPad Pro? Well, yeah. Does it use an older Apple Pencil? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But bang for the buck, it's just unbeatable. You can honestly pick one of these up uh, pretty regularly for under 300 bucks, which is pretty insane. Now, just because it's cheaper than some of the other options here, that doesn't mean that it's poorly made. It's an Apple device. It's, it's going to be a well-made device. It's just a budget device, and there's nothing wrong with that. iPad versus a Mac, obviously, you know, this is gonna be pretty easy to carry around with you, you know, if you're actually taking it to a class, and even if you're, you know, studying from home, then you're still gonna be taking it down to the kitchen table, you know, or up to your bedroom, and you're taking it around with you, you know? So portability, it can't be a factor, and this is a nice, light, great option. Now, straight out of the box, does it come with a keyboard like you can get with the MacBook Air that we just mentioned? No. And is the performance gonna be as good as the Mac Mini that we started out with? No. And you're gonna need to add on some peripherals, I think. You're gonna wanna get a affordable keyboard and you're gonna wanna get potentially a mouse. Something like the Pebble i345 would be perfect for a budget iPad setup for sure. But same with work, I already mentioned. I could do everything I need to on an iPad Air or even the base level iPad just maybe a little bit slower, you know, in terms of the actual performance of the chip inside. Well, if I was a student, I could still get all my studying done with this thing too, no doubt about it. We're gonna skip the iPad mini because I feel like that isn't really a, a good option for 
a student. It is really compact. I love the iPad mini five, but I end up using it more for consuming things than creating things. So it's great for reading and maybe that's what you need, you know? And, and honestly, I have tested out the Apple pencil with the iPad mini and it is workable. You can use it, but I don't think I would recommend it as a, as an actual student thing. Now, if you really want to upgrade your experience, I think the way to go would be the iPad pro probably the 11 inch. People ask me all the time, which one should you get for a student? You know, I'm assuming that you're going to be pretty portable, whether it's this semester or like in a year and a half when we have the vaccine out and everything's more running more smoothly. I think at some point you're going to be more portable. So the 11 inch probably is what I would go for. I would definitely get, if you could, this is the top end setup here, the magic keyboard with the trackpad built in. And it's an all in one setup there. Now, as a student, should you get an iPad or a Mac? Well, a lot of that is really gonna come down to the Apple Pencil. I think if it was me, I would want the Apple Pencil. I love to take notes digitally, even if you don't wanna spend a lot of extra money and get something like GoodNotes or a crazy PDF app that's really full featured, even just using Apple Notes, you can, you can do so much with Apple Notes and it's only getting better all the time. But I like having the option to be able to type out. So if, if I had to like write up a report or something, I would love to have uh, the magic keyboard to do that. And I would love to have an Apple pencil for taking notes, you know, in class. Now, do you need the pro with the second gen Apple pencil? No, I have the original Apple pencil and I've used it on, uh, you know, a base level iPad and it's fine. It works. It's a little bit trickier to keep track of cause it doesn't attach magnetically and you've got to store, you know, and you got to charge it as well. And, uh, whereas it's easier and always with you to charge and store, with the iPad Pro, but no, you don't have to have the top of the line uh, equipment to get a top of the line education. One thing I think that you've got to consider no matter what you're doing is the webcam, because let's say you're doing distance learning and it's important you know, to participate. Well, you're gonna get a better camera in the iPad Pro than you are in any of the Macs, even the MacBook Pro right now. But that's not the end of the world. Maybe you wanna use uh, your iPhone as a webcam and hook that up to your Mac. You can do that. I just covered a way to do that on applehype.com. Now, if it was me, uh, those are kind of the main options, I think, for students. I would not go with the Mac Mini. That's not the route I would take because I would want something that's more portable. So I personally would rule that out. If it came down to using a Mac or an iPad, I probably would go the iPad route. But I tend to be more of a creative person too. I like to sketch stuff. I do like to do stuff by hand, like handwriting notes. That's kind of more my style. So I think it really comes down to a preference, but at the same time, it's a big deal, you know, if, and this comes down to budget too, but if you want to upgrade your setup a little bit and you like using an external display, that is still something that is much better on the Mac. Although I've also been testing out shift screen three on the iPad uh, to let me use an external display. Uh, and it's a little bit more full featured. I should do a whole separate video on that. So there's a workaround, but I think for me though, if I was a student, I would probably go the iPad route and I would go the pro route if I could, but if I couldn't, then it wouldn't be the end of the world. Yes, you're not gonna be able to make full use of an external display, but as a student, do you really need to? Like if you're in the dorm room and you want some entertainment, you know, you wanna pipe in Netflix, YouTube, the iPad is still great for that stuff. You can, if you don't have the pro, which has amazing speakers, uh, you can just hook up a portable Bluetooth speaker and really upgrade your sound, you know? It's not the end of the world to not be able to connect to an external display. So I think those are the options that you should look at. I'll try to link those up down in the description and the show notes so that if you wanna go look around, dig around yourself a little bit, then you can. 
Um, that's what I would limit my search to if I was looking for an Apple device as a student or shopping for a student. All right, so hopefully you guys enjoyed this podcast today uh, and the new structure and style. Let me know what you thought what kind of stuff you would like to see incorporated uh, into the podcast that hasn't been, whether it's the video version or the audio version, just the subject matter, what we're talking about. Let me know. Give me some feedback. You can reach out on Twitter. Uh, you can reach out by email, uh, you know, the form on our website, dailytech.com. Uh, but thanks for hanging out with me, and I'll catch you guys in the next video or podcast episode. Later.